Hello and welcome back to episode four of the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I am your host, Joe Robinson, and I am joined, as ever, by Mr. James Spender. How are you, James? Uh, I'm really good, actually, Joe. I had a lovely weekend. I saw my mother and father for the first time in three months. That's lovely. Yeah. How are they? How are Mr. and Mrs. Spender? Um... They're in well, this is the brilliant thing, you see. I decided I'd cycle out to meet them kind of equidistant. I'm in London, they're in Portsmouth, and my sister and her family, do not worry, we were no more than six, also came down. Uh, and we socially distanced. So I cycled and I arrived in the car park and I saw my dad with his head in the boot of the Skoda and he popped up and, I, and he went, Oh, it's you. Would you like a cigar? <laughs> <laughs> I'm dripping wet with sweat. And he's puffing away on a cigar. And I was like, I haven't smoked in five years. I gave up vaping at Christmas. And he was just like, what? Really? You don't smoke anymore? And I was like, I'm your son, your only son. And me stopping smoking was a massive thing. And here you are offering me a cigar, telling me that you hadn't realized I quit smoking. And did you have so, a cigar? I didn't have a cigar. I, it just didn't seem appropriate at the time. It's fair. Um, and then, and then, not to be outdone, my mother uh, appeared with my niece, uh, Imogen, who is four. Imogen has got a doll that she calls James, which is lovely, because James likes cycling. James the doll likes cycling so much that my mother took some of my old lycra and repurposed it into a tiny Castelli outfit oh. for James the doll. <laughs> so this weird doll showed up clutched under the arm of this little kid coming running at me going James 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 it's James 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 look he likes cycling um and uh yeah I I cried I must admit it was just beautiful man and you never want to get on the wrong side of your niece now because she will turn that into a voodoo doll yeah I mean it look I I don't know where my sister gets these toys from but they're not brand new they look a bit voodoo-esque yeah should we crack on go on yeah, no, I was, I was going to say, so yeah, had a lovely, um, I'm, I'm good, I had a lovely weekend. How about you, Joe? Tell me how, how life is with you. I heard you bought something. Yeah, I did buy something. I bought the biggest purchase in any cyclist's life, apart from a bike, and that's a house to put the bikes in. Yeah. I'm, nice. now, I'm now a homeowner, somehow, some way, during a pandemic, at the ripe old age of 26, I bought property within the M25. Don't ask me how. Those low, low Um, interest rates. Yeah. Oh, mucho low interest rates. But come back to me in six months' time and ask me how that's going, James. Uh. (laughs) I will. I will. Well, that's good. I'm glad that's, that's, yeah. Congratulations, mate. Chapeau. Thank thank you very much. Uh, Let's get on to the episode. Um, So today, listeners, we're going to have a little discussion about tattoos in the professional peloton. That's right. Uh, The... Men and women's pelotons have come awash with inked up stars and we've hunted out some of our favourite tattoos, the good, the bad and unfortunately the ugly. Um, We're also then going to talk about why would a brand or a company want to sponsor a cycling team. So with the news that CCC are going to be pulling out the professional peloton and that a mystery non-profit based company called Manuela Fundacion has replaced Mitchelton Scott. We're going to talk about some of the weird and wonderful companies that have been involved in professional cycling. 
But before we do that, James, we're going to enter into our first segment, which is stuff I like and stuff I don't like. So, James, what's something you like recently? Something I like recently, uh, I really like Rafa's protein shoes, um, mainly because the ones uh, that they do in the EF education colours are just super sick. They're like this kind of, wo- that, so they're woven, that um, natty woven fabric that everyone loves in shoes at the moment, and they kind of go in this like black to purple fade, and they just look the absolute business. But also, they fit really well, and mm. I can't tell you you should buy them because they might not fit you, but they fit me. They're subjective, but subjectively, I love them. And they prove that knitwear is for more than just test cricketers, don't they? They have, te- or, or, you know, Chawlerman. <laughs> yeah, Chawlerman as well. And is there something you don't like at the moment, James? Top of your head? Uh, something I don't like at the moment, top of my head, uh, fly tippers. There's just still too many fly tippers. They've reopened the tips. Um, you can go and dump your uh, three-piece suite or your kitchen from 1975 at an actual tip it doesn't have to go at the side of the road in epping forest or the kent lanes yeah um please stop fly tipping it's just not very nice is it best one that i saw over the weekend i did 135k on saturday humble break oh nice yeah thanks uh middle of a roundabout was a burnt out cement mixer that was yeah <laughs> i don't know how <laughs> because it was a big cement mixer so it weren't like one person could chuck it on there it was a two-person job but it was on quite a busy roundabout junction, so there was quite there would have been quite an ordeal to get the flight thing there. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, quite. It weren't or, just out the back of the van, kind of deal. Or is this a new thing? Are people nicking cement mixers, having a really good time with them late at night, and then burning them out so to get rid of the fingerprints? Yeah, but that still doesn't make sense as to why it was in the middle of a roundabout. True, but yeah, True. I didn't get that. Um, and. I'm assuming you're going to ask me something I like, James. Uh, go on then. Tell me what do you what do you like other than your new house? What do you like? Other than my new house is that well, it's a few things that I like actually, James. Because uh, since lockdown's begun, I've realised that I've developed a bit of an addiction. Oh now, yeah. Yeah. So you know that we can't go to restaurants anymore. So I can't go for a cheeky Nando's and a cinema date with my my other half, who I've just bought the house with. Mm-hmm. Um, the pubs and bars are shut, so I can't go for a couple of pints with mates. So what I've sort of come accustomed to doing on a Friday after a long week of work is I have my dinner, I then have a couple of beers sitting on the sofa watching Gogglebox, and then when I've got a bit loose, a bit merry, not drunk, just a bit, you know, a bit, bit lubricated, I get on my phone, I get on eBay, and I start searching for vintage cycling wear. Oh, mate. Oh, yeah. Nice uh, looking. It's become a bit of a, a problem because in the last week I've dropped a hundred pounds on four items. Um, wow. Yeah, and it could have been a lot more. Could have been a lot more. So I'll tell you what I, I bought recently. I bought yeah. a 1993 uh, Teramice Arostia jersey. Um, I was inspired by our chat about that team from last episode with the nice jumper that. Oh yeah. Um, and I wanted to get that jumper. I couldn't find it for love nor money, but I did find the 1993 jersey, which was um, Bionne Reese War to a stage win at the Giro that year. And it looked mm-hmm. like um, it's like a red and yellow color scheme, a bit like a. Uh, do you remember? Do you know fruit salad sweets? Yeah, yeah, I remember that those. kind of vibe going on. Yeah. Okay. So, so... and uh, the Arostia uh, team have been made sort of a bit of a cult team recently because have you ever watched Stranger Things on Netflix? Yeah, 
So in series three, one of the young kids, Lucas, he wears a cycling cap in that. And it's the Teramice Austria cycling cap. So it's like it blown up a little bit, that team. It's like a bit of a hipster hipster choice. So I bought yeah, jersey. Nice. That cost me 20, no, 33 quid. And then eight pounds post and packaging. That was a fortune because it came from Italy. Um, then I also bought a team telecom jersey from the 2000 season. So I've become a little bit obsessed with Jan Ulrich recently. Um, right. And there's a particular photo of Jan Ulrich um, cornering on the Onglaru that I've shown you before, James, because he's riding a mm-hmm. Pinarello Galileo. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. I think it's my favourite professional cycling photo of all time. So I was hunting out some telecom team kit and I found a gilet, but there was so little details about the buy it, the seller that I, I just couldn't buy it because I, I, I was convinced that I weren't going to have the product turn up. So instead, I bought a jersey, eight quid, five pound post and packaging from the 2000 season. And then the Pierre de Resistance, James, was the 1995 Motorola team jersey that I've just bought as well. Um, 1995 was a, a roller coaster year for that team. Obviously, there was the unfortunate death of uh, Carsatelli on the Col de Bort d'Aspect at the Tour de France. Mm-hmm. And a couple of days later, Lance wins into Limoges uh, and dedicates that win to, to Carsatelli. He then went and won San Sebastian that year, Lance. Um, but he also, most importantly, finished 33rd at the Wincanton Classic in Leeds. Um, oh, yeah, big result for Lance. Big result for him. Uh, but some of the other stuff I saw on eBay that was just amazing was there was a, a lovely 1992 Gatorade Chateau d'Eau jersey, long sleeve in green, as worn by Laurent Fignon in his like, latter years of his career. Mm-hmm. There was a 2003 Uscartel Uscardi team edition or Bayer with four Shimano Durace for a grand. Right. Oh, nice. I, yeah, I yeah. like. I like. I own an Orbea, so that was tempting. Um, mm. And I had the money in my account for the deposit of my new flat, and it almost went on that Orbea. <laughs> and then, <laughs> yeah. And then the last one I saw was I saw Alexander T. Christoph's entire Norwegian team kit from the 2017 Worlds in Bergen. So someone had somehow got hold of his entire team kit, his skin suit, rain jacket, long sleeve jersey, over socks, and was selling it all for about 450 quid all in. Um, and it's you beautiful, need... but it's a size medium, so it wouldn't have fit me. No. I I mean, especially back in those days, that's a, I mean, it's not that long ago, but cycling kit has definitely sized up to something a bit more normal um, and a few people... years ago. A medium yeah. is like an extra small. Yeah, and Christoph's like a, Christoph's a big boy in the peloton. Like he's not one of the small yeah. guys, but even so, like a big man in the professional cycling is still a very small man in life. Big man in a small so, jersey. That's what they used to call yeah. it. Yeah, big man, small jersey. And then the other, the last, actually, the last thing I saw was a pair of Bont Riot cycling shoes that someone had custom painted as a homage to Lincoln Park. Ooh, I mean that just sounds all kinds of wrong. Yeah. 250 quid, and they were size 11, so I was tempted, but I'm not a massive Lincoln Park fan, so I miss. I, 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 t- I decided not to get that. So I just I got them free jerseys. I also got a Lotto MBK team jacket from 1993, so that completed my collection. I'm probably going to do the same this Friday, I'm honest, James. 
So is that just one? That's that's uh, a fortnight's worth of collecting. Fortnight's worth of collecting, and it adds to. A, I already have a Mapai jersey. Um, wow, you're going to need some. Uh, I hope you you got planning permission for the extension on the new new gaff because you're yeah. going to need some space at this rate. You, you know it, but you know the the worst thing. I, stuff we like, but the stuff we don't like is that every single jersey that turns up comes with a smell, and it's not like a, a bo sort of sweat smell. There's like a, that mm. musty dust smell that comes with old items because these jerseys are like older than you know the i was born in 1994 so some of these jerseys are actually older than me but they cut and i don't yeah. i mean i don't have this musky smell but these jerseys do and it doesn't matter how much russian no i think i think it's um people smelt different back then and oh, it's, right. it lingers it really lingers so you've got the smell of someone from the 1990s crossed with long-term storage so you kind of it's a bit of a kind of charity shop sound clash of a of a smell oh, shop you've got. Oh, I thought it, I thought it'd then smell of hooch and tamagotchis. <laughs> I've never smelled a tamagotchi. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can imagine. Um, I can imagine that lovely whiff of plastic. Yeah, but yeah, hooch. I can imagine spilt hooch, spilt hooch on a warm park bench. Ooh. Um, let's get on to part one of today's episode, which is tattoos of the professional peloton. So this week got Joe and I thinking about pro cyclist tattoos, mainly because there hasn't been any racing on. And so we've seen professionals really pushing those social media outlets, boundaries, whatever, to get their, get themselves out there and keep them a kind of uh, keep their currency going for the teams because they need that sponsorship. And it's harder than ever now, really, because when you think about it, we don't really know what half the pros look like. Because they're wearing helmets, they're wearing sunglasses. And so it kind of begs the question, how do you set yourself apart in the pro peloton uh, on a a race-by-race basis? And one of the things that I think we've stumbled upon is tattoos, isn't it, Joe? I reckon that's that's the way that riders are kind of marking themselves out these days, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. So when you think back to the 1990s, you had someone like Mario Cipollini with his massive hair, and he used to wear them zebra skin suits, the skin look like the muscle skin suits oh yeah the go muscle back, one yeah, yeah exactly go back to the 1980s and you had uh, people like Gert Jan Furness who was like the flying mullet and just was so distinctive and even further back with Jacques Concontil with his quiffered hair and his, and his jaunt sort of face very good looking man but now because we've got massive sunglasses and helmets you just they almost become robots and mm. so and you don't know who these people are but one of the ways that you know, cyclists are actually very individualistic. I would be able to say that right once. Um, but And how they do that is by their sort of tattoos. And tattoos weren't really a thing in cycling for a long time. When you think back, there was like Richard Veronk had a tattoo. And there was a couple of guys in the 90s that had ink. But now, like a full sleeve in the peloton is quite common. You know, some of the biggest guys in, in the sport, Wiggins, Tom Boonham, Peter Sagan uh, have a lot of tattoos. Yeah, and a lot of these tattoos tell them tell people about themselves. Um, but there's one guy that I spoke to recently, James, mm-hmm. whose tattoo is a sort of homage to his profession of cycling. So I recently got on the phone with a man called Kern de Court. So he's 37 years old. He's been a professional cyclist for 18 years, and he's ridden with some of the world's best riders. And he's helped guide the likes of Marcel Kittel, Alberto Contador, John Dagenkopf to some incredible victories. But he's never actually won a pro race himself. 
right? So right. you have like these consummate domestics, but he's a real forgotten man of the pro peloton. But he has an amazing tattoo, and I spoke to him about it. And do you want to hear what he had to say? Please, I'd love to, yeah. So, uh, when I told you before that I finished third in that Dwarfs of London Classic, um, then uh, I crashed uh, two days later, I think, or three days later, maybe it was, at the T3 Harrowbecker uh, mm. race. And uh, I took off nearly all the skin on my right side. Wow. And I was always interested in getting tattoos, but, uh, you know, like the influence from my parents, you know, don't do that, you've got nice skin, why would you do that? You'll have that for the rest of your life. And then I thought, well, you know, I'm going to have this scar for the rest of my life that I didn't ask for, so now I might as well get a tattoo too. So it kind of covered the scar a little bit, but that wasn't even point like i didn't want i didn't need to have that scar covered mm. it was kind of like just part of part of me and um and then you know just getting putting myself into that sort of danger I, I figured out that i was basically only doing that just for entertainment so um therefore i thought i saw some parallels with with gladiators i mean it's not that i think i'm a gladiator or, or anything like that but i thought it was a it was an interesting parallel that um, that they gave me an idea for a tattoo. So I just wanted I wanted to have one one gladiator, and that was going to be it. But yeah. you know, as they say, you get hooked on tattoos. I decided to make it bigger and extend it, and it kind of stuck with the same with, with the same theme. So that was kind of caught there, explaining his tattoo of three gladiators fighting a tiger on his back which he says is representative of him riding a bike professionally for the entertainment of us spectators. What do you think about that, James? Do you think that's a a good tattoo, a good idea? So it's three three gladiators battling a... A tiger. A tiger. So is Kern the tiger or one of the gladiators? Kern's one of the gladiators. Okay, What's what's the tiger? I guess the tiger is the open road. The Tiger is zero. It's not. It's not the UCI or the ASO. No, the general or the general public. I think. I think the Tiger can be the the Tourmalet as it can be the Koppenberg as it can be Crosswinds. Nice. I mean, if a Tiger was going to be anything, it would probably be Outdoors because Outdoors is basically orange. Um, but no, sorry. Uh, I I I digress. What do I think? I think that's kind of an amazing reason to get a tattoo, isn't it? To cover up scarring. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I didn't know that you could. I don't really know very much about tattoos, but I'd have thought it's quite difficult to tattoo scar tissue, or maybe, I don't know, not seeing what his lasting injuries were from that. Perhaps, I'd assume uh, it hurts. Yeah. I'd assume that hurt a lot. Um, I would have thought it would hurt a huge amount, because it's, it's a big tattoo, isn't it, as well? It's not like he's just got a kind of uh, heart with a, a knife through it or something and mum underneath. No, it does take up the majority of his back, and... Um... To be fair to him, it, at least there's some sort of, there's some real good meaning behind that, and and it and it's quite an interesting parallel he makes between the gladiator and him as a cyclist. And he says that while it's not a direct comparison, he can see the similarities. But I mean, it makes a lot more sense than say someone like Peter Sagan. So his latest, well, I say his latest tattoo, he may have got some new ink, but he has a self-portrait of himself on his ribs. Yeah, but it's not just of him, obviously, because Peter Sagan. So it says him as the Joker from Batman. And it says, why so serious underneath it? <laughs> Which, 
makes as much sense as Peter Sagan makes sense as like an individual human um, is a complete enigma, really, yeah. isn't it? He's immense. List. I mean, he's the sort of person I could imagine showing up with a tattoo of him essentially dressed as Christ at some point, blessing people. <laughs> yeah, definitely so. Have you got any favourite tattoos from the professional pilot and James? Um, yeah, I mean, there's quite, there's, I quite like what Victoria Pendleton's, I don't, I'm assuming that she did it after, um, finishing up her track career, but she's got this cool Medusa on her uh, left shoulder, as in the kind of, um, the Greek, uh, the, the lady with the snake hair from Greek mythology. Yeah. That's what it says on her LinkedIn profile, lady with snake hair. Um, and I can never fail to be impressed. This is not pro cycling per se, but the, the number of cycling fans i guess people that just like bikes who have the campagnolo logo tattooed on them i don't know if you've come across that but when i saw i went to campagnolo's factory and even some of the guys that work in the factory have the winged kind of i think it's like a winged wheel quick release thing yeah that's diehard it is i mean that's next level there's uh facebook groups of people with campagnolo tattoos so yeah there's there's two for you that i really like but um i guess my favorite one is Wiggins just as he is he is a walking he is a walking tattoo parlor shop front you know when you flick through the book and you can choose yeah, whatever you want he's he has one of everything uh but there's just a you know there was a point where even Bradley only had a few and he had this really quite terrible tattoo of Prodigy uh the, the dance band Prodigy's music from the Jilted Generation um, which is like a face kind of coming up through skin or like cling film or something kind of like, kind of like this drawn face. Uh, he had that done on his shoulder because he just loved the proj. And then equally, it turns out, didn't really love the tattoo that much because he's now covered it up with um, the kind of like three angels ensemble. I'm not really sure what it means. Uh, but yeah, I've, so I've got a special place in my heart for Brad. He's He's definitely somebody that really rocks it with the tats. Yeah, I'm also a big fan of uh, Pipo Pizzato, the Italian oh, yeah. sort of classic sprinter, uh, now retired. Uh, also is now a, I believe he's a semi-professional uh, rollerblader or roller really? hockey player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, his nickname, uh, he's from, so he's an Italian and he's got a massive coy calf across him. Uh, yeah. with the words inscribed across his back, only God will judge me. Um and he sort of said that he got this because people used to look at him. He was permatanned, always wore white shoes, white bib shorts, had big hair, was a bit of a, a bit of a card on and off the bike. Yes. Um, but he was like, I'm a serious bike racer, you know, and people don't know who I am. You know, I'm a, he won Milan San Remo. He won E3. He won Het Volt. He won stages of the Tour de France. And he was, and he, by getting the only God would, can judge me tattoo, only God will judge me, sorry, uh, was him telling the world that they can't judge him and not know him, um, which I, I really liked. He's suitably Italian. Um, I'd, I'm also- yeah. I mean, I love that mentality of, uh, hey, I mean, I just have massive hair and wear white bib shorts and white shoes and white everything, and I have this permatan. And yeah, I, I don't even stand out very much. And I can't believe anyone would dare judge me. It's like, mate, you're a pro athlete, so number one, you're going to get judged. Number two... <laughs> You definitely didn't help yourself. You look really cool, but what do you expect? Anyway, nice tattoo. Um, the Koi Carp edition scores extra points because it's totally irrelevant. 
And are there any any ones that you you're the sort of jury's out for? Well, I've never really been a fan of Phil Gaiman's clean tattoo. He's got a bar of soap tattooed on the inside of one of his arms mm. um, with the words clean in Boston, a bit like the cover of Fight Club. Um, the um, I can never remember the guy's name that wrote it. But anyway, the um, the cover of Fight Club's book, that bar of soap with this word embossed. Hey, and it's not because... the only one. There's a couple of others who got that. And it was yeah. signified that they were clean athletes in a in the murky yeah. world of Exactly. And there have been people that have pointed fingers and said that maybe athletes with a bar of soap with the word clean on aren't necessarily as clean as they might be. Who knows? We're not here to stand in judgment. But it just it just seems a little bit, I don't know, a bit self-righteous, I suppose. And I know that a lot of, a lot of riders weren't, his uh, contemporaries weren't fans of Gaiman's for getting that. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I've come across Phil Gaiman in interviews. I mean, you've got a good Phil Gaiman story that maybe we should ask you about. But I've met the guy and he's very, met him over um, a hotel buffet. And he was really nice because there was this young kid. We're doing a sportive the day after. And there's this young kid and he was asking Phil for advice about doing this climb. And he was just so open and really, really lovely with this kid. You could tell the kid was like completely awestruck. Mm. And he was just like a consummate professional slash just really like matey and just unpretentious. So... You know, again, yeah, we're not here to stand in judgment of uh, Phil the man because he seems like a, a good bloke, but Phil the tat, mm, not for me. You know what not I do me. like? I like it. Um, I think if I was an Olympian or I won Olympic medal, I would get the Olympic rings tattooed on me. I know yeah. Pauline Ferran Prevost got that. Wiggins, uh, Sammy Sanchez, Wiggins. So that's pretty prevalent across the pro pro peloton. What I wouldn't get though is what Phil Jules has got, Philip Gilbert which is a rain, the rainbow bands tattooed across his ankle. Now, it's not so much because he's got the rainbow bands tattooed on him, because fair enough, he won the Worlds in 2012. Incredible result. But it's because they're wonky on Phil Gill. You look <laughs> at both of them, they're not straight. Do you, do you think that's because he just got progressively more muscly and they wonked? wonked as, as he as his calves grew well there's the, the saying i mean i've never i've never i've attempted to get a tattoo but i've never actually got a tattoo and they say that it hurts a lot more where there's less muscle yeah so directly onto bone and there's not much muscle or fat around the ankles especially for someone like gilbert who's going to be minimal body fat so i reckon it hurt like an absolute hurty thing hurty thing um like an absolute beech tree and um, he kept moving, and it went a bit wonky. <laughs> it's filled in because it's coloured, so that's gonna that's that's gonna hurt. Um, yeah, I like that. Um, I also I'm not I'm not I'm, the jury's out on Nico Roach as well. Uh, got? Team Sunweb rider. He's got the entire lyrics to Ed Sheeran's "Perfect" tattoo. Oh, you're joking? Is he actually? Yeah, no, he has. Do you not remember? We, <laughs> we did a feature with him, and he and he he told um, I think it was James Whips. They'd got the the lyrics to Ed Sheeran's song scribed on him as an ode to the to his love with his uh, new girlfriend of the time, um, which is you know bold, to say the least. Um, there's also Sylvain Chavanel who has some tribal tattoos on him. Despite, I mean, I've done some research and I don't think he's of Polynesian background. Um, no, you're not. No, I don't think so. But there's there's a, there's history of French riders getting some strange tattoos. A lot of them have uh, 
sort of barbed wire on them at places around like around mm. the legs or arms, which is like a like a real like I don't know that feels like real two thousand and two um, vibe there. Like I have a goatee and gel down my hair. Yeah, and like, I don't, yeah, I'm not sure about that, but I think the 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 strangest or the most out there tattoo belongs to a man called David Klinger. Am I right, James? Yeah, so this this popped up weirdly for both of us when we were looking into um hashtag tattoos. Yeah, hashtag research exactly. Um, because unfortunately, yeah, this guy really would have stuck out in a crowd, and it's actually quite a sad story. Uh, so he's an American uh, rider from the early two thousands, a bit of a journeyman, but he had he had talent, and he rode on probably his biggest team as a uh, U.S. Postal, mm. but he. Basically, like a lot of guys of his era, battled with um, drugs, both performance enhancing and recreational. And uh, rather, it's a, it's such a strange thing to sort of relay. But um, in an interview conducted a few years ago uh, by Velo News, he said, really sadly, I was under a huge amount of pressure um, coming out of the 2005 season. And I went to Argentina and I basically just got into doing cocaine as a way of um, relaxing, which is kind of crazy to think because you don't really think of coke as a relaxant i suppose um and he just completely went off the rails and he went to this tattoo parlor and uh got this massive it looks maori but apparently it's kind of polynesian mm, in, like a in background yeah like literally like he's wearing a like so huge tattoo over his face entire um, face over his entire face and also um you can't see it because he grew his hair but on his on his scalp mm. like all up all up his scalp and apparently he he didn't get it finished, did he? Um, and he came back and he just got a contract. He was out of contract. He just got a new contract. Uh, I can't remember the name of the team, but it's a smaller Web Conti Core, team. Webcore Builders Cycling Team. Webcore Builders Cycling Team. Well, there you go. Not a big hitter team. No, one for the history books, though. Yeah. Um, and they took one look at him and were like, mate, we can't sign you. Sorry. Which is funny because you think now he'd be probably big business because he just again stick out but he you know he had he had serious um mental health problems i guess as well at the time which is terribly sad and um it was too expensive and too painful to remove so he got it finished so he had this tattoo and he's still i believe he's still kind of getting it removed bit by bit which again sounds crazy but speaks to how massive um it is uh yeah like he then he was then also famously i think he was the first guy to sign for rock racing which oh, yeah. was the bad boys of pro cycling, weren't they? Yeah. You know, bad boys for life. They were the, all the, the drug rejects and, the, you know, there was uh, Tyler Hamilton, David Klinger. Who else did they have? They had, I think, Mario Cipollini even turned out for them and they were meant to be <laughs> the sort of like playboys and bad boys of professional cycling, but that team eventually only lasted not very long at all. So you might hear me tapping away now. I'm just going to Google, when did Cipollini retire? Because Rock Racing was 2007. He retired in 2008. He came back out of retirement to race for him because he was like, no, there's no no cycling bad boy team without big Mario, the Lion King, Um, Mui Mario, Pretty Mario. So um, he came out of retirement to ride for this team because they were bad boys. didn't take any noble victories or do anything. Uh, just sort of rode around in their, their kit for a year. They went, then went home and got then to no good. Then went home. 
yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. Um, there is one other tattoo that I've just just sprung into my head, right? There's kind of nothing to do with anything to do with professional cycling. Amateur cycling tattoo that I saw, the best one ever, was on this, um, when we did a trip to Colombia, we went to this uh, sports even on the start line was this bloke, he's, he's a big lad. He has a lot of real estate to be doing a tattoo. So these big, big old calves. And he had just one half of uh, Shimano Ultegra five-arm chain set tattooed <laughs> on his calf with, <laughs> with the crank arm going down the calf and then the, the chain rings on the bigger bit of the, the top of the calf. And it's just really funny because you just kind of think of all of the parts of a bicycle. A crank is not the worst thing to get tattooed, but just to shoot for, I'll go, oh, dura race, nah. No, dura race, I mean, there's no point in dura race because it's, it's only just, it's just slightly lighter than Ultegra, but loads more expensive. Yeah. So I'll just get the Ultegra. Like that's, that's, that's the thinking man's crank set. Yeah. Real ones, real ones, no. Real ones, no. You'll, yeah. you'll see that and you'll give him a little nod and a wink and go, hey, I know. So it's like this guy. Uh, and then I'm assuming as well at some point, um, quite soon after that, Shimano went to a forearm crank set. So I hope it weren't in response just looks to his tattoo. Really... Pardon? I hope it weren't in response to his tattoo. <laughs> yeah. That was fight. So it's him. So he was great. And another one that I really, really loved is um, this guy called Andrea Pacenti, who was the guy that basically TIG welded all of the laser frames. So Cinelli, the famous Cinelli laser bicycle which you know that i love so much of which you own uh, which i own a carbon one one day i might own a steel one but they mm. are far too expensive uh and there is a specific laser font which is it kind of looks like um uh fluorescent lighting from a 1980s strip club and he's got laser man written down the inside of his forearm because he was allegedly the only guy that ever welded lasers although he definitely had help we know this but I think that's kind of cool. Like, how much do you love your job enough to get it tattooed on me? So I'm waiting, Joe, for you to get a cyclist tattoo, please. Well, yeah, cyclist, digital writer on my forearm. <laughs> yeah. um, please don't ever give me a promotion because I'll have to get this changed. James, did you know that we also make a cycling magazine? A cycling magazine, you say, Joseph? We do. And we want to give our listeners a taste of Cyclist magazine with a special offer of free issues for £5. That's three months' worth of knockout writing, if we do say so ourselves, and stunning photography from the world's best writers and snappers for the same price as a coffee and some cake. All you have to do is visit www.cyclistmag.co.uk forward slash podcast. You'll enjoy all the benefits of being a subscriber, which include free delivery, each issue with you before it's in the shops, subscriber-exclusive covers, and exclusive cycling deals within the industry. So all you need to do is visit cyclistmag.co.uk forward slash cyclistmagazine podcast and get it bought. So the age-old question of sponsorship in professional cycling has reared its head again this week. That's because CCC, which are basically Poland's answer to Brantano shoes, has decided to pull the plug at the end of the 2020 season, on its men's World Tour team, due to the coronavirus affecting profits. And a mystery non-profit-based company in Spain called Manuela Fundacion has taken over the reins at Australian team Mitchelton Scott. Now you ask yourself the question, why would a non-profit charity and a 
budget Polish footwear company want to be involved in a sport which is actually quite niche. That's when we got thinking about cycling sponsorship in general. So James, why would they want to be involved? Well, quite simply, the answer is advertising. It's reach. It's the fact that the Tour de France, according to the ASO anyway, is still the most watched sporting event in the world when you take into account all of the fans that line the side of the streets and all of the people that watch it on TV. It's even bigger, it reckons, than the World Cup and the Olympics. As I say, that's an ASO statistic, but it's way up there. And it has always been the case. It was originally, uh, the Tour de France, this is, started to sell newspapers, uh, Henri de Grange's Le Auto, and then so were the Velta and also the Giro d'Italia set up to sell newspapers in their respective countries. Yeah, famously Gazzetta dello Sport, wasn't it, in Italy? The pink paper, hence, hence the pink uh, leader's jersey and the yellow leader's jersey of the Tour because of that being the colour of the Lotto. Uh, well, there is some kind of contest around the, the yellow. The, the, certainly the Maglia Rosa is, is pink because of the Gazzetta della Sporta's newspaper uh, paper, which is pink. But the auto's colour being yellow is apparently coincidental um, with it being the Malajon because there was basically no other colour that the team wasn't using that would mark out a leader to the extent that the Tour de France wanted so they went, okay, we use yellow. And actually, it was a very unpopular colour at the time. And um, whoever, I can't remember the guy who first who first wore yellow. Someone can probably correct me on this. Uh, didn't want to wear it. It was seen as a bit of a kind of, uh, you know, yellow belly, canary kind of colour. Probably some uh, disenfranchised Norwich supporters out there didn't want to be seen in yellow. So, um, but yeah, so selling newspapers was the big thing. And it was so successful, particularly in Italy, that the um, Gazetta went from being a three times a month newspaper uh, when the Giro started in 1909 to being a daily newspaper by the time uh, it rolled around in 1913. So it's really, really useful to advertisers since way back to the point where one of the first trips I did under the auspices of cycling to go and see liquid gas as it was then. The liquid gas rep told us all, this is a guy from liquid gas, you know, said this contract between 2005 to 2014, Liquid Gas was in connection with a pro cycling team. They reckon it generated $2 billion worth of reach wow. for them, which is insane. And I'm not saying that CCC Polish Shoes is going to get as much money out of uh, sponsoring the CCC team as that, but you know, I'm sure it sold a, f- a few uh, shoes off the back of it. But it, so makes, that, yeah. it makes sense for, because then it, you know, if you look at someone like Quickstep who have been in the sport for over 25 years, they're a Belgium flooring company. And you'd ask, well, why would they want to be involved with cycling? Well, their biggest market is in Belgium. The biggest sport in Belgium is cycling, and the best team in the world are the Koenig Quickstep. So by having your brand plastered upon their back, Quickstep have basically got the shirt sponsorship of Liverpool Football Club. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that's it. It's that association, isn't it? And I suppose there's an element of maybe you're listening to this thinking, well, that's that's blindingly obvious. Of course, it's sponsorship. That's why anyone sponsors any kind of sporting team. But it really is such a kind of strange web of a relationship between sponsors and cycling teams. And, it's one, and that's one of the reasons why you get these really kind of left-field sponsors that you might not do. They, they make less sense in they cycling. They do, yeah. So yeah. in football, you know, you have a lot of 
there's actually a bit of a problem at the moment in that a lot of football teams are sponsored by betting agencies. Exactly. But that makes sense because people bet on football. Yeah. Um, there are spon- there are sponsors in cycling that make sense. Trek bikes sponsoring the when men's and women's team makes sense because they want to sell bikes. The other sponsor on that team, Segafredo Coffee, makes sense because cyclists drink a lot of coffee. But why would Molteni, who produced cold meats, want to be involved? Yeah, for instance, exactly. Why would they? Um, and again, it does it does come down to reach, but also it comes down to the way I think. Uh, the way in which organisers and teams have historically courted anybody that would be willing. It's why cyclists, cycling teams have so many sponsors. They'll, they'll take anybody because the sponsors are the team's primary source of revenue. It's out, way outstrips the prize money at the Tour de France, which is maybe half a million euros for the winner. Your team's sponsorship package is worth several million from the bike supplier alone. You know, you'll generate, you need to be making mid-range 15 17 million for a world tour team the top top teams are running on a budget of 35 million that's got to come from somewhere and it certainly isn't coming from tv rights so yeah you do end up with these strange strange sponsors and it's always been that way so the first way Mm. way way back the first extra sportif sponsor they call it so extra to the sport nothing to do with cycling was uh, a pools company as in soccer, you know, football, football pools called ITP. And that was back in the late 1940s. And that was for a kind of non-league almost um, British team. But the biggest first trade sponsor was Nivea, which was a hand cream sponsor. Yeah, still, still around today. Yeah, still around today. And that came along in 1954. And that was maybe a bit of a watershed moment, 1954, because that was kind of an admission by the teams that they just weren't making enough money from their traditional sponsors, which were normally the bike companies at this stage. So you had Frienzo uh, Magni, who was a top rider back in his day, and he was sponsored by Ghana Bikes. And that just fell through. They just couldn't provide enough money for the team. And so he went to Nivea, and he was using Nivea hand cream on his derriere for his Mm. uh, chamois. And he said, look, there's a bit of an association here. How about you help us out? And they dropped 200,000 euros on the team. And lo and behold, the team kept going, uh, much to the chagrin of the Tour de France organisers who were dead against having trade teams because they saw the trade teams as ruining their races. Because initially, when those trade teams were bike companies, those bike companies in the 30s and, and, uh, and 40s had so much clout that they were able to concentrate their money on certain teams. And then those teams were able to buy results. And the tour organisers are like, this is not on. So De Grange dropped in uh, only, so it's national teams, wasn't it, for a while, from 19, 1930 through through to the war, through, to, through into the 50s. Nivea was a bit of a, an upset. It shouldn't have been. And it was only way into early 60s when trade sponsors were technically allowed in the sport. Well, yeah, as in sponsors from outside of the sport. And, and the, famously, the first one was uh, of Jacques Oncomtil. Yeah, that's right. So the was it the San Rafael Drinks Company, which is like an aperitif uh, type of Aperol, uh, struck up a deal with Rafael uh, Gemiani, who owned the team, to sponsor the, sponsor the team at the Tour de France. And obviously, the UCI didn't want that to happen, and the Tour de France didn't want that to happen because they were extra sportif, and they 
famously got around it by Raphael Gemiani claiming that it was actually just an abbreviation of his name. Yeah, so that's so that's that's exactly it as his kind of uh, sponsorship through the back door. He just said, "My name's Raphael. This is called San Raphael. The name on the side of the that team wagon and the name on those jerseys. That's my name." But the UCI and the Tour de France, they were having um, having none of it. So they did fight this, and it wrangled on and on and on until uh, Milan San Remo the following year in '63. And at that point, the president of the UCI was kind of just like, "Look." guys, you, you can do this. It's probably going to be good for the sport. I can't sanction it. So show up to the Grand Depart wearing normal jerseys, please. But you can whip them off and you can display your sponsor at the beginning of the race. And what I'll do is I'll send through a memo, but I'll make sure that memo does not arrive until the day after. So it looks like I've done my bit saying <laughs> this is not cool. And you haven't actually flouted the rules because technically I hadn't told you that that was our ruling. And that was kind of where it started. Um, and also, interestingly, that's where Rafa, you know, as we know it now, Rafa, the clothing brand, that's pretty much where it borrows its heritage from. And if you look, if you Google San Rafael Aperitif, it still exists in Italy, still an Italian aperitif, you can buy over it. And that font is alarmingly, if not identical to the Rafa font, although Rafa obviously says Rafa, it says San Rafael. So... Even then, this strange nexus of sponsorship and how that's even the sponsorship then spawned one of the most successful spin-off bike companies or bike industry companies going, Rafa, at the moment. You know, they're incredible uh, success. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's a really interesting, very, that was a very potted history. It's, you know, you could go far, far deeper than this. But it's interesting where this all, all this sort of stuff come, came from. And it's uh, no wonder that, we end up with such weird sponsors like, I and mean, one of the funniest ones is Amgen, which made, made sponsor the tour of California and made EPO. Like, can you imagine? I don't know. Uh, what's a good example in in I don't know a cigarette company sponsoring a tennis player that just wouldn't fly anymore because the two things are just so incongruous. Uh, but the, the idea that cycling would go, oh yeah, huh, yeah, everyone's doing EPO. Come on over here, you can sponsor our race. So, so two of my favourite uh, sponsors, obscure sponsors, are if you remember the 2012 Tour de France, uh, there was a French pro continental wildcard team called Soya Sun, and they had your typical French breakaway artists, people like Brice Filler, Jerome Coppel, and Jimmy Ungouvlon, who is my personal favourite. Um, and they were a Breton-based producer of soy products, like milk. They made soy milk and soy yogurts. And you'd kind of ask yourself, why? Why would they be in cycling? Um, and another one was uh, a team from the 1990s. Technically, actually, they still exist, uh, called Amor Avita. And they were an Italian team that was a pro-life anti-abortion group and were backed by the Vatican. Um, and the team would even travel to the Vatican at the beginning of every season to be blessed. Unfortunately, they didn't take on many victories of note but it was certainly a stranger stranger occurrence um another thing james i would say is that one thing that has helped cycling over the years is by having very rich individuals prop up teams so for instance if you look in the current peloton you have someone like jim ratcliffe who's britain's richest man i believe a multi-billionaire and he owns a petrochemical company called ineos but because he loves cycling he uses that company to pump effectively about £40 million a year into the team Ineos. 
setup. Before that, just before that, you had Oleg Tinkov, a Russian billionaire who pumped his own sport cash into the sport just because he loves cycling. But James, I'm sure that you've been researching and found two individuals who used their own business to help cycling and actually helped invent one of the common things from the peloton today. Is that right? Yeah, it's true. So when you think of team buses, what do you automatically think of? Whose bus springs to mind? It's team, team Sky slash Ineos, the Death Star, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, the famous Death Star, the massive hulking blacked-out window Leviathan with the washing machines down the bottom. And if you look at most <laughs> paddocks, most car parks at big races, they will have similar kinds of vehicles these days. Uh, it's not uncommon whatsoever. However, it's weird to say, but up until the late 90s, most teams still didn't really have that. They didn't have the big team bus. They had smaller vehicles and cars and stuff. And if you were you know, going from race to race, that's absolutely fine, jumping in the back of the mechanic's car. But if you're a smaller team and you don't really have sort of, I don't know, you haven't had a hotel put on for you, for example, you're going to a single day race, where are you going to get changed? And this was something that occurred to a couple called Corrie and Franz Siemens, who's, uh, this is back in the 80s, whose kids were big into cycling as teenagers. Um, this is in uh, in Holland. And they were showing up to all the local races. And the mom and dad thought, hang on a second, we're constantly seeing our kids shivering uh, their little behinds off in these car parks on these windswept days getting changed. And why don't we give them something that they can get changed in and maybe even somewhere where they might be able to store some food or even maybe cook some food. And they thought, let's get them a double-decker bus. Let's get them a British route master and we're going to paint it. The best bus. The, best, the only bus, the only hop-on, hop-off Does bus. Did, did Reg Varney from On The Buses come with it? I think he delivered it. He would have delivered it, I would have thought. Uh, and then he would have... Yeah, that was the, that was the common... common case back then wasn't it yeah and then I, i'm assuming he would have had to have got the ferry home because the euro tunnel was not finished at that point so <laughs> with reg reg said goodbye please enjoy this route master they said red is not the color for us we want it blue do you know what else we want on the side of it we want a naked lady do you know why we want a naked lady why because cory and franz they owned the sauna diana sets club so basically they come Whoa. from yeah yeah i know it Bit of blue, bit of blue oh, for the dads. Oh, exactly. Yeah, didn't see that one coming, did you? So they, you know, Holland, the home of uh, sexy, sexy European time. These guys also owned a luxury sex club, and they poured their money. Another weird sponsor, you see, these bringing these strange sponsors into cycling. Poured their money into this bus, and as their children developed into the sport, Jan particularly was was pretty gifted, and he was a good domestic, and he went to TVM with Phil Anderson, and later he went to GB. MG Technogym. So this is early 90s and the bus kind of followed the kids around and it was there for those early teams, TVM, GM, GB, MG. And then later on, Jan hung up his uh, wheels, but the bus actually carried on. Other teams borrowed the bus to keep using wow. it until the point someone went, maybe we should buy our own buses. And so, yeah, about 1997, 98 season, that bus kind of disappeared from the peloton but you still will see it um, at certain races. Um, Rolled out. Yeah. So I've, I've Googled Sauna Diana, James, yeah. right? So I've had a little look and I've found a photo and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to describe to you what I can see in the photo. So there's about 30 Dutch kids sitting outside what is Club Diana, which doesn't look like a sex club. It looks like just a bungalow. 
Um, they all look really fresh-faced, except from one guy who's got a moustache and looks a lot older than the rest of the riders. To the left, there's obviously the uh, obligatory team car that they're all posing around. To the left, there are four older blokes, all in geometric jumpers and oversized suits with very big grins on their face. Um, there are two women with hair that would make Van Halen quite proud, actually, posing with a bike. <laughs> um, there's the, the dear mother. Uh, what was her name, James? Uh, Corey. Corey Siemens. Corey. Corey's standing there like a very proud mum. And then behind him is the double-decker Rootmaster laden with Sauna Diana on it. Um, I mean, it's a traditional cycling photo where they're posing with team cars and something that doesn't happen these days and should happen. Yeah, that's one thing that we are lacking, isn't it, is those classic mm. classic cycling photos. Egan, Egan, can you just sit on the bonnet, uh, Geraint, get in behind the wheel, and Chris, we need you to lay on the floor because we can't actually see where it says Ford on the side <laughs> of the car there. So uh, if you could just lay on the floor there for us, Chris. Now, we've just won the entire team time trial. Um, could you all stand on this one staircase in this quite Dickensian-looking hotel with one hand on the banister? And look over your right hand <laughs> shoulder and into the camera, please. There's so many great, I mean, there's so many, so many good pictures. And the one that always springs to mind when I think of those awkward pictures is Merckx and Onkatil sat in the middle of some, I don't know where it is, the middle of some velodrome. Uh, they look pretty fresh faced. They don't really look like they've been racing. Yeah, Tom Simpson's in the photo as well, isn't he? So I, I think I know the photo you're talking about. Uh, do you know, I think there might be two. Are oh, you right? I think there's another one, but it's, 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 the, it's the way. Because there's the one where they're all sat in a line and Merckx is wearing his Peugeot kit, isn't he? And then Onkatil's in Bic. And is that with Simpson in it as well? But I'm thinking of the one of just Merckx and just Onkatil. And they're, they're sort of sitting side saddle, so to speak, on the grass with their tiny little pop socks and their little driver's gloves and their coiffured hair. And Merck, I mean, Merckx, you could not have a more sultry expression. He could advertise Sauna Diana on the side of a bus if he was naked. That's that. And yeah, he's he's a good looking. He's a handsome fella, and he's probably at that age. Both of them are. Both of yeah. them should have been Brill Cream models with that hair that they had. Yeah, that unmistakably unmovable hair. It, Just, you know, it is the two hundred and fifty k at Paris Roubaix. That doesn't matter. My hair still looks like I'm Elvis. <laughs> Precisely, you, usurped only by Hugo Kobler, the uh, Swiss rider. Was he Swiss or French? Who carried a comb with him? Swiss. Swiss carried a comb with him. Wherever he went, and a bottle of cologne. Yeah, it was. It wasn't so much of having some food and some water and a spare on him. He's his pockets were filled with a bottle of cologne, some Perrier water, and a comb, in order to freshen himself <laughs> up in victory for the been, uh, end of race interview. It's <laughs> yes, brilliant, isn't it? I, be, I believe there's a point where there was a, a comb company that was interested in making a Kobla comb. Which sounds a bit like the Kubla Khan, the Kobla Comb, which could have been big, uh, but I don't believe he ever made it. But that's that's you can't do that these days, can you? Because of the helmets, which is a bit of a shame. Yeah, which we discussed earlier with the tattoos. Yeah, it kind of does just uh, just does just bring us back. But I mean, we should probably crack on and let. Uh, I should probably let you go, Joe. Get back to your house, back to your painted decorating. Yeah, yeah. I've already done some. I've already done some online shopping uh, to get some. Some stuff for the house, nice. uh, including a double decker bus. Nice. I just wanted to personally just just leave you, Joe, with an image of Chris Froome having just won the 2014 Tour de France. 
and he's sat on a Pinarello bike. He's, yep. looking at, he's looking at the camera. And he's, oh, I know what you're going to say. Yeah, and he is emaciated, he is crashed up, and he is naked. He is naked, oh. and he's got his knee in a useful position, so he's not entirely naked. Oh. But it is just the oddest picture you have ever seen of a cyclist. <laughs> he looks like a man possessed. He also looks like a man who's been in solitary confinement for a year. And he is also sort of like weirdly happy about being in this picture and Pinarello presumably weirdly happy about letting it get out there I don't know who it's a, it's a bit of a Prince Andrew moment I'm sure someone's like what who who let this out from our marketing <laughs> department how the hell and has on, this happened and on that haunting note thanks for listening to episode four of the Cyclist <laughs> Magazine podcast um continue to subscribe to comment to leave a review um, we'd love to hear about anything that you've bought off of eBay. We'd love to hear about some cyclist tattoos, uh, obscure sponsors, and we really want some facts about Greg Wallace. Uh, we yet to get any of them. Yep. Just get into in contact with us on Twitter at cyclistmag or at cyclist at dennis.co.uk. That's you as well, Lee Dixon. Yeah, Do get me. in touch. Yeah, um, me, but for, Greg. for now, James, I bid you adieu. Can I um, just add to your list of asks and ask our dear listeners if uh, anyone's heard of the Holy Brother cycling team from China, the People's Republic of China? I can't find any more information, but they're called the Holy Brother cycling team. 2010 to 2017, hit me up if you know anything.